speaking to us. Great. Good to be here. I'm just going to take you to, as I mentioned, there have been various articles, but uh, one that has also been uh, making the rounds of interest of late has been by uh, a- an academic at the University of uh, Minnesota. But one of the things that she says, and it's Kewa Abdi, she, she, she says labeling South Africa turmoil xenophobia is scapegoats for poor blacks. But she goes deeper into how we can't talk about xenophobia outside of the vacuum of the current situation in South Africa, something that's been noted by others. What is your point of view of this? I think it's absolutely true that you can't remove the economics of the situation, that if you look where many of the attacks are taking place, they're taking place in shack settlements, poor people attacking those who have even less and um, and you must think about that, that if somebody was nine years old in um, in, in 1994, they will they they will be 20, uh, 30, nearly 30 years old now, and they still be living in a shack. They would have seen their parents dying in a shack. Mm. So you can't remove that from the equation. Mm. And what I also found interesting is how she talks about the the proximity of how majority of African migrant groups and native Black South Africans actually occurs in the underdeveloped informal settlements and townships. So if we're going to go to the labels of uh, xenophobia and Afrophobia, it's also outside of this context. Yes, I mean, you know, I don't think it's the time for for semantics, you know, xenophobia, uh, Afrophobia. What What we need to understand is that these attacks are taking place in the areas where the poorest South Africans live and where the refugees that are least well off are trying to find a space. Mm. And if you go to the refugee camps in Durban, in Phoenix, in Chatswood, you see the kinds of people that have been attacked, people who have absolutely nothing, and the little that they have, they have now had to leave behind. And obviously, um, in terms of political correctness, uh, one wants to integrate people back into that area. But you can, you can well imagine why people don't want to be immediately integrated into the very areas they were chased out of, often by the very neighbors that they thought they could rely on for protection. Prof, I want to uh, touch on that issue of political correctness and uh, how important it is or how much it actually shrouds certain issues or clouds them. Um, I- I'm just going to refer to one of our callers speaking about uh, apartheid and its impact on what we're seeing now. But the real question for me is what was the extent and what is the what is remnant of the psychological and physical abuse of the apartheid system on the people of this country and whether or not it can be pointed to as a reason for why we're seeing some of the brutality here? Or is it just a scapegoat? No, I think that that psychology where we didn't have a state that we could rely on to protect us. When somebody attacked us, we attacked them back and we use violence to settle scores or we use violence to protect ourselves. I think it will be uh, ridiculous to rule that out. And I think in a very nuanced and subtle way, Jacob Slamini talks about this in his book, Naked Nostalgia, that as much as we want to have nostalgia, we can also see how uh, life was trespassed also by the most vicious forms of violence. And even now with the 
uh, with Dr. Mangana's book on the Black Consciousness Movement, which I was just reading today, you think about the violence that took place between Azapo and the ANC. It was only wasn't only anti-apartheid struggle that inside of the liberation movement that one had these struggles that often turned violent, street by street, township by township. And if we look at the growing gap between the haves and have-nots in this country, which is often lamented for uh, some of the major societal problems that we have, how do we then place that into what we're seeing now, given the fact that we've been talking about the fact that uh, the poorest of the poor have seen infrastructural development, have some of them been pulled out of poverty? Well, I mean, clearly we need to take cognizance of the fact that a developmental program that was supposed to deliver uh, over a period of a couple of decades uh, in improving the lives of the majority of people has not happened and is not happening. And what is even more scary is that uh, what is coming out now around employment creation, uh, uh, around the way the RAN plummets, the, the, the kinds of things that we're doing in the import-export market, the failure of BRICS, that we can see at a macro level there are huge factors to take into account that will not alleviate the kinds of sufferings of the poor. But I think what it has sobered many people who write about the service delivery uh, protests, and many people have romanticized this idea of the rebellion of the poor. But what we're actually seeing is that the rebellion can take many forms. That there's been the service delivery protests, there's been protests about water, there's been very disciplined protests, but there's also protests that take forms that we can't countenance. And how do we then conceptualize this cry of the poor? Do we, we constantly then label them as criminals or do we seek to understand the fact that this transition is not delivering at the level and the rate that we expected it to now one might talk about rising expectations and so on but right now we have a sense of what people have called relative deprivation people are comparing to themselves the people closest to them and they have a sense sometimes that oh, you know foreign nationals are doing slightly better than them or have a better um, place in South Africa and they're attacking these people they're wrong but no revolution is just made on clear principles and clear ideologies I want to then go back to the issue of the rising service delivery protests that we've seen. And as you said, our romanticizing of it. Is there any evidence that we are dealing with the crux of that issue, especially, as I said, the fact that they're they're increasing, but they take so many different forms. Do we are we actually grappling with the causes of some of these? No, I think one of the problems that we have to face up to that post-1994, we wanted to institutionalize all politics. If you've got a problem, you go to your ward councillor. If you've got a problem, you go to NEDLAC. If you've got a problem, you go to your member of parliament. You join a political party. So we try to institutionalize politics. But what is happening in South Africa is a lot of politics is taking place in outside those institutions. And so if you look at the new subjectivities, the new politics that is arriving around the EFF and so on, the, the, the defacing of statues, the service delivery protests. People have a sense that they can make changes outside of these institutional channels and quicker. And just look at the example of the fact, something like even NEDLAC, which was supposed to bring a social compact between labor, government and unions. 
how often has Medlac been able to play that role? So what we find is that the institutions that we created in 94 and had some purchase for the first decade are starting to fall apart. And what is happening is that people think we go to the ward councillor, we vote for our councillor, we don't get what we want, but if we take to the streets, we burn the tires, we get, we, we put ourselves in the public domain, we in, in the national grammar of politics, and often, if nothing else, we get the president to come and visit us mm. and see the conditions we are living under. Just a final question then, Prof, if I, I'm just also looking at another rich here talking about the, the, the problem is the demon of ignorance of the country's poor citizens. But the question I am asking myself, at the, at the point at which we are in, in our transition, there have been many other countries who've been said to have gone through precisely this route. But obviously there are peculiarities to the South African uh, system and history where should we go from here? If we then accept that we are at a point in our transition where there needs to be real change and uh, active citizens who are at the forefront of that, ensuring also that we have effective institutions if we're going to allow that to happen. Well, I think we, 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 we must stop having a celebratory idea of ourselves. We must stop exceptionalizing ourselves and we must stop thinking that they're going to be quick fixes uh, to these problems. And then in those quick fixes, we try and label people in particular ways and get over it. So suddenly all the people who are doing the attacking are, are suddenly criminals and so on. That, as uh, President Jacob Zuma said, that we made a mistake in 2008 where we thought we had dealt with these issues. Well, we didn't deal with them in 2008. They've been festering, they've been there, they've been subterranean, they've sometimes been open. I have a deep sense that once again in 2015, we're trying to do the same thing. We say, us all over now, we integrate the refugees and the problem has gone away and our people have been educated. Well, I think if we take that shotgun and quick approach uh, to the resolving of those issues, then we're, we're going to harvest an incredible amount of violence, an incredible amount of blood. And our country won't be known as a country that is able to face its problems square on and begin a process of dealing with them. And I, I feel that, that there's an edge here, that, that because we want to be so politically correct, because we're so embarrassed, because we don't want Africa to think badly of us, because we don't want to be the first item on CNN, let's quickly get over it. But as they say, you know, every suture, every stitch opens new wounds. And if we do a quick band-aid of this, we'll pay a big price for it. Right. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us, uh, Professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Johannesburg, Ashwin Desai. And uh, T.I. Free Time writes that, what do I do with one foreigner who keeps on...